Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Hostile troops massing on the border of a Central European democracy. Fears of staged provocations, risk of a wider conflict that could spiral out of control, urgent diplomatic negotiations that seem to fail to soften a would-be aggressor's demands. No, it's not 1938, it's 2022. But Russia's threats against Ukraine and its demands for new security arrangements in Europe sound all too familiar. Of course, the huge difference today is that Germany is not only firmly anchored in the West, but it is a foundational, even an existential pillar of the European Union. Nonetheless, today's Germany is center stage in the Ukraine crisis. Dependence on Russian natural gas, deep commercial ties, the legacy of Donald Trump's disruptive presidency, and perhaps fear of a future second term, Russian political meddling and influence campaigns contribute to a sense that this crisis might be less about Ukraine and even more about the future contours of the relationships among Europe, Russia, and America. Constance Stelzenmuller knows that topography better than most. He is an expert on Germany and on transatlantic relations and works today at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Welcome, Dr. Stelzenmuller, to New Thinking for a New World. I'd like to focus our conversation today not on current events, but on the underlying dynamics that are shaping this crisis. High on that list is energy. You recently wrote about Europe's energy trilemma, your term. What does that mean? The energy trilemma is the framing that attempts a, to describe a policy conundrum that all governments have, which is that they need to find the sweet space in their energy policy between environmental sustainability and social sustainability in terms of prices uh, on the one hand, then secondly, security of supply and national security. Very often gas and oil contractual relationships come with complex security relationships, whether you're importing from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, uh, from Norway, not so much, but certainly from Russia. So Germany in particular, but in general, Europe has a high dependency on Russian gas. Uh, that has been a conscious set of choices over a long number of years. Uh, Nord Stream 1, now Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, Russia is uh, Germany's largest supplier of, of natural gas. Um, and at a moment when there is uh, not a shortage of gas, but a shortage of gas in Europe, electricity prices through the roof, um, there's a sense of an energy crisis, mini crisis going on in, in, in the context of this larger environmental crisis. Uh, in terms of sweet spots, from the Russians' point of view, that's a sweet spot for a crisis. But I, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, the gas crisis, uh, the gas crisis, sorry, is real. And it is both a price crisis and a supply crisis. And it is enabled by 
complex policy choices, some of which are rooted in the policies of a decade or two ago, as you say, with Nord Stream 1, the first pipeline that was built in the 90s, and some of which are created by Russian decisions to not supply. So let's maybe untangle this. Um, and I also want to put the point in early, and we may want to then also unpack that, is that supply dependency does not necessarily imply political dependency. There is, there is no automatic linkage between importing gas from Russia and being subservient to Russian demands. And just by way of reminder, some of Germany's Eastern European neighbors to this day import more than 75% of their national gas needs from Russia and are in no way is considered dependent politically, nor are we in Germany, nor in fact is America for importing uh, Russian oil, which it does. So what happened in European and German energy policy was that um, there, is, there are countervailing political and economic and technological forces here that are, as it were, sharpening this trilemma and enabling the, the Russians to put pressure on Europe and Germany. And that is the fact that the Germans have been trying very hard uh, with a lot of investment in technological innovation and a lot of government subsidies to transition away from fossil fuels not just oil and gas, but also coal, of which there is a lot in Germany, to renewables. That process has, on the whole, been successful, but it has moved much more slowly than was hoped and predicted. And it, we are nowhere near substituting the entirety of our energy consumption needs with renewables. And then a second decision was made after the tsunami-induced nuclear catastrophe at the Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan in 2011, there was such fear and outrage in Germany, I think fueled perhaps also by the still very vivid memory of the Chernobyl disaster. Um, that was a nuclear power plant in, um, in Belarus that um, very nearly exploded in, in, the, in the 1980s. Um, and Chancellor, then Chancellor Merkel made the decision to take Germany out of nuclear power, which was completely in sync with what a large majority of public opinion wanted, but sadly was not in sync with our energy needs and our energy policy. In other words, it made us even more dependent on fossil fuels, more dependent on gas and oil imports, and more dependent on coal, um, because the, the renewables haven't gotten to where we want and Germany is the most extreme case of this in Europe, but it's not the only one by any means. The additional factor in this crisis that is enabling the Russians to weaponize their position as a gas supplier is a huge energy need from China. And the fact that gas, which used to be non-fungible because it went only through pipelines, gas has become a much more fungible commodity and can now be sold and moved around much more quickly as liquid natural gas. And so there is now an alternative market for the Russians in China. It's not quite as large as the Russians would like it to be. And it's not as large, so large that it can replace European demand, which remains very important for the Russian supplier. But as you describe it, Constance, it's a perfect storm. That's exactly right. Choices made, uh, choices not made, accidents, uh, literally accidents, uh, and, and events in other parts of the world, the Chinese 
who had some of the exact same problems in terms of their energy transition sequencing, which is to say we are where we are. The Russians clearly do have an opportunity to pressure Germany in particular, Europe in general, uh, probably not the last time that Mr. Putin would take advantage of that kind of circumstance. Uh, with what consequences? How do you think, what, what do you think the reactions will be? I saw a poll recently, earlier this month, that said, and I have no idea the credibility of this poll, but claims that 60% of Germans say they want Nord Stream 2 finished. Yes, I think that was a Forza poll from January, which is a reputable polling institute in Germany. How does this work itself through, first in the current circumstances, and then from a security point of view, what do you do about it in, in the medium run, if anything? So, uh, I mean, having having run a uh, a poll myself for two years for my previous employer, the German Marshall Fund, um, I am exquisitely aware of the importance of the context in which a question is asked and of the follow-ons. And I think that we should not put too much weight on those poll numbers because um, there are a number of different ways that I can imagine reading that answer. And I suggest we just drop that. I think it, it doesn't get us anywhere. It's more helpful to look at what policymakers and politicians have been doing, and then you can sort of um, lay that side by side with, with public reactions. My understanding is that on the machine, machine room level of policymaking and implementation, um, Western policymakers, including Americans and Germans, have been working with each other extremely closely to design a, an array of economic sanctions that would serve to deter um, hostile action by the Kremlin. Now, the President of the United States himself, in his recent press conference, in what was widely critiqued as a gaffe, actually touched on a very important and legitimate point, which is that a Russian action underneath the level of outright, you know, full frontal invasion raises really important questions, political and legal questions, of what triggers sanctions and what we do to keep them proportional, right? Any international lawyer can tell you that. And that has been a matter of debate among the allies. And it is a matter of debate, not just because these are real legal issues and political issues, but also because the economic blowback that sanctions would bring onto the West are going to be very differently distributed in the alliance. And it's not going to surprise any listener when I say that the blowback on America will be very limited because America has very limited exposure to the Russian economy. In particular, America could substitute the limited amount of Russian oil that it imports probably any time. It does so purely for price reasons. It's bad quality oil. Um, the Europeans, because of their much greater exposure throughout Europe, to the Russian economy, not just because of energy imports, but also because of banking relationships and to some degree manufacturing relationships, will incur much greater economic damage from sanctions. And so the policy challenge is a double one. On the fir Firstly, to devise economic sanctions that will hit the Kremlin hard and make it rethink its options. And secondly, how to mitigate the backlash of those same sanctions on Europe, so as not to undercut political cohesion. Yeah? 
And this is where it matters that the two countries that stand in line to bear the brunt of the economic damage in the West from sanctions are first Germany and second Italy, which is a point that Italy's Premier Mario Draghi made before Christmas in a Financial Times office. And it's serious and it needs to be, there need to be mitigation strategies because this isn't just, you know, a, a political symbolism issue. This will also translate into further gas scarcity and further heightened gas prices. And it will also translate into inflation and at a time when most Western leaders feel in one way or another on the defensive vis-a-vis -vis their domestic electorate or are facing elections like President Biden in the midterms or the French president in the spring. These issues are real, in other words. And that is, um, I think, a very serious point to, to, to discuss. But my understanding is that on the principle, the Western reaction is rock solid. And one of the things that, why, what, one of the reasons why that is the case is that so far the Kremlin's uh, rhetoric and the Kremlin's actions have been so outrageous and so, so untenable that... Um, they have, in fact, bound the West together. And let me name what those points are. There, first, you have the fact that we now have 127,000 Kremlin troops stationed to the north of Ukraine in Belarus, to its east, and uh, the westernmost oblast of Russia, and finally in Crimea and the Black Sea. And they're land and sea troops, and they've also brought in helicopters, which is a bad sign because helicopter Units are expensive to maintain and are usually brought into a combat zone, you know, late and just before action is, is to begin. That is the reason for the heightened concern in Western capitals. And that's the military part. Then there is the rhetoric. The Kremlin before Christmas um, delivered two draft treaties, one to Washington, D.C., one to NATO. Um, and they were delivered in, in content and in tone and in style as an ultimatum. Meaning you sign this and you sign it as is, there's nothing to negotiate here, or there will be conflict. And these two draft treaties contain demands that is that are by no means about, as some have are still talking about, um, neutrality or Finlandization of Ukraine, but they're really about rolling back the uh, Europeanization of the of Eastern Europe. And Central Europe to 1997 or 1991. In other words, they are rolling about rolling back um, the democratic transformation of the former Warsaw Pact nations after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and ultimately about pushing America out of Europe. Western leaders have made it clear, including the Germans, that these are non-starters; they're unacceptable demands, and there is nothing to negotiate there. They have instead offered to negotiate on confidence-building measures on our missile defense and on maneuvers, things like that. The Russians have rejected that proposition. So we are in a standoff. And while there are diplom diplomatic maneuverings now, it's, um, I'd say, the, the, the likelihood of there being actual military action is, is now above 60% or more. And that's where we are. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, Please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org/donate. That's t a l l b e r g foundation.org/donate.
it is where we are, but there may not be military action. That would be good, of course, but we would still be in a circumstance where uh, the underlying frame of these issues is what it was that allowed Putin to think that he could move in this direction. And, and perhaps, perhaps we could explore that. What is it that President Putin thought he saw that encouraged him to, as you just described, put massive troops into um, the space around Ukraine to make the demands he has made uh, to uh, affect the cyber attack that they've affected on, on the Ukraine a couple times now and so forth? What is it that, or perhaps differently, what is it that we should do, assuming that the moment passes and that there isn't war? How do we get to a more stable environment that makes sense for Europe, makes sense for the Western alliance, and I guess its diplomacy makes sense for Russia? Is that possible? I think the Russians have laid it out very clearly that there is no place that is acceptable for the West. Well, then the odds aren't 60 percent. They're much higher than that. That's possible. But it's not that would not be the fault of the West. Oh, but fault once these things start is is for historians. They're not for the people that are in the way. I beg to disagree. Well, the people that would be uh, pay the price of, of of this would probably disagree with 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 you. No. So I guess the question becomes: um, Do you see alternatives that are credible, imaginable? that would work for for all of the sides? I think you're going to have to be a little clearer on what you think would be a desirable compromise so that I understand you. What I think would be a desirable outcome would require the United States to behave quite differently than we have over the last months, uh, would require a much more robust conversation at the leadership level than we've had for some time, both within this government and its predecessor, American government, um, and would require a systematic effort to try to reduce the vulnerability vis-a-vis the Russians. Could this crisis lead to a different kind of conversation among Western leaders? I mean, you know, I I think uh, there I can imagine many things, but that is for the long term. And right now, I think is not at the forefront of people's minds. Can we envisage a better European energy policy, which makes it less uh, uh, susceptible, more resilient to the weaponization of energy supplies and gas prices? Of course. But I think our listeners know, you and I know, just how fiendishly difficult it is to resolve this energy trilemma, to come back to the original term. Um, Should the uh, European defense budgets and European defense contingency planning um, be much more resilient? Yes, but that doesn't resolve the question, the problem of Ukraine, right? Ukraine is not a member of the EU or NATO, and the Ukrainians are under threat of invasion. And the question for Europe and the United States is not whether it applies Article 5 to that, because Article 5 applies only to NATO members, but whether we are willing to countenance the violation of the right to sovereignty and the right to choose of a country and a state 
by an authoritarian superpower, a great power, sorry. That's what's at stake here. And I don't think that that, you know, we can have a, we have, we can have a conversation about uh, what it would take to make us all more resilient uh, to bullying by an authoritarian great power, but, but that doesn't resolve the current standoff. And I think the understanding in Western capitals right now is that this is no longer about, uh, say, neutrality for Ukraine, but it is really about uh, America's presence as a European power and about Europe's relationship with America in defense terms and in political terms. And that's not something that I see a potential compromise on because the Kremlin has made its demands, has set its demands so high that I don't really see how to do this. And again, you will recall that after they published those two draft treaties, the defense, um, sorry, the deputy foreign minister of, uh, of Russia, uh, Mr. Ryabkov, said that as far as the Kremlin was concerned, these two pieces of paper could be signed on the following day because there is nothing to change about them. If that's not an ultimatum, I don't know what it is. It certainly was presented as an ultimatum, but it was not as accepted as an ultimatum because we are still looking for diplomatic solutions, no? Now, whether or not this ends in a shooting war, whether or not... I think that the, those searches for diplomatic solutions are looking more and more like a, a, a case of stalling or playing for time. Because the diplomatic solutions that we have offered have been rejected. Well, when you have 127,000 troops in the field in the winter, um, playing for time is a curious strategy because you need to operate pretty soon. Um, the cost of that, uh, the onset of the mud season, eventually the, the famous March-April problems in, in Europe and moving people around. Um, you would think that time is not particularly on the Russian side. Yeah, may I suggest not not taking that too seriously? I think that that, uh, that keeps cropping up in discussions, and I think it's wildly overplayed. Um, I'm seeing an entirely different strategy at work here. I think that what the Kremlin would like to do, because that would be most cost-effective for it, is to use a military threat um, to achieve a political goal. Of course. And... Towards that goal, the Kremlin has for months now been pro probing and uh, prodding and probing um, what it thinks of as the chinks in the Western alliance and its armor and seeking to drive wedges where it sees divisions. And it has not just been using military means for that. Uh, remember the... Um, destruction of a Russian satellite in, um, in outer space, which had the occupants of the International Space Station scrambling for cover. That was Moscow, the Kremlin, showing the West that it can, if necessary, attack the communications infrastructure in near space to impede Western operations. That was what that meant. It has been uh, moving in the Baltics. It has been moving in the Black Sea. 
when deploying the troops, we've already talked about, and it has been using massive amounts of disinformation and propaganda in social media and in, in Western media spaces. And all of this with the goal of um, sowing confusion, fostering disunity, and I think um, exhausting Western cohesion so that when it decides, when Putin decides what would be the optimal form of striking, that we are too confused and exhausted to react appropriately and will fall apart. I think that's the strategy. And so the response is, I think, not to speculate about the weather and the foliage and the mud, but to understand that we will be probed every day in different ways for the next weeks and months, which is why um, this is more, almost as much as the sort of operational military challenge, it's a cognitive and psychological challenge. And it is, which requires from Western politicians to be imaginative, to be um, adaptive and to think ahead. And above all, to maintain messaging cohesion, which is where the really quite terrible messaging out of Germany, much of which, however, has not come from the actual deciders, but from members of the legislature or from uh, opposition leaders, Angela Merkel's party, which is now in the opposition. That's unhelpful because it confuses the, the um, Germany's allies, understandably. And the defense minister is the one, of, the one person in that group who is actually in a position uh, to make policy, but she is a former justice minister who comes to this job as a novice. And who's, I mean, for, for, for those who are making, who are actually making the decisions is probably the least important and least powerful cog in this business. I'm sorry to be so technical about all this, but, but it does matter if we're discussing what the, what the issues are. No, but the terribly important point that you have just made is that the cohesion um, within Germany, within the United States, within France, within the EU, within the West, is is important. Has been less than perfect, to put it mildly, and, and maybe that's maybe that is the punchline. Um, you've said repeatedly at the policy level, things are working fine, um, are working well. You think they're working well at the political level. Well, let me let me make two. Let, let's talk about three rings here: the policy level, the machine room, as it were, the yeah. political level, and and the public opinion level, right? And as I said, the machine room, I think, knows has a very distinct idea of what the spectrum of of what we, what our toolbox looks like, and where we are, where we still have disagreements because we have different vulner vulnerabilities and haven't figured out yet how to mitigate those. Right, but that's that's doable. Now, the the politics level is yeah. Here you have to distinguish between politicians who are in government and politicians who are not in government. And maybe in the latter case, you can distinguish with the ones whose parties are in government, but they are not in the actual government. They're in the legislature. And I say this because some of the some of the muddying the waters has become has come from social democratic members of the legislature who uh, have made pronouncements on issues on which their expertise is less than total. Yeah. You're speaking specifically now about Germany. Yes, I am. 
and and that raises, of course, uh, that that raises the pressure on the government. Uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz is a social democrat, like those members of his own party, and the Social Democratic Party has an unfortunate tradition. Remember Willy Brandt and Helmut Schmidt of shooting ha- shooting down their own chancellors when in power by the legislature. That's a that's a glorious social democratic tradition, um, and one would think that they wouldn't want to repeat it. Right. But they are. I think I think this is the, the these these statements from these legislators had two purposes. One, they were talking to the base and they were trying to talk to the base about what they thought mattered to the base. You know, you could argue they should tell the base what should matter to it. But OK. And the other thing is they were talking to the government and to the chancery and saying, remember that we have power over you. We are your party and you have to you have to keep our interests and our wishes in mind. So this puts Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, into a real bind because he is ultra-cautious by nature, um, is somebody who I think by in his whole character and his whole temperament prefers ambiguity even in peacetime. And of course, I think quite understandably, in a situation where you really don't want to tell the Russians what you're going to do in, in which scenario, also prefers very clearly and with really good reasons to to maintain ambiguity on sanctions. And meanwhile, he has all his legislators mulling around and saying, we don't want this, we don't want that. And then you have the head of the, the opposition, the Christian Democrats, the Christian Democratic Party, and the Bavarian sister party giving interviews in which they're also saying, but we don't want X, Y, Z. And so it boils down in the end to a leadership question, is Olaf Scholz, willing and able by temperament and by choice to sort of bang his shoe on the desk and say to his own party and to the opposition, would you please shut the bleeping bleeping up? Yeah. This, you're not helping. That's where we are right now. And to some degree, he's done that today. Well, and, and complicated by the very particular circumstances, political circumstances in Washington, by the circumstances in Paris, and so forth and so on, we, we clearly have, uh, we, we don't sound terribly united at the political level, even if we're gradually sort of getting there. And, and you made the point earlier, and perhaps it is the punchline, that the Russians, by demanding too much, uh, may help us get there. And that, I suppose, would be a good thing. You know, I mean, can I can I just say this? I I, I don't think of myself as as ultra hawkish by any means. If I thought there was a credible way of resolving this situation by brokering a decent compromise between Russian demands and Western Western positions, then I would absolutely argue for it. But I don't see that because the Kremlin's demands and rhetoric have been outrageous. Let me quote something else at you, Foreign Minister Lavrov, who said in an interview that after 1991, the demise of the Soviet Union, all those Western territories had been left orphaned. What he means by orphaned Western territories are the current EU and NATO members from the Baltics to the Black Sea, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, and others. That's unacceptable rhetoric for the West. We're not going to let those countries go back into a Russian sphere of influence. I mean, it's unthinkable. 
that's that's not a platform for any realistic political compromise. And that's where the Kremlin is right now. And I have to tell you, let me add, please. I ha- I'm asking myself whether the man in the Kremlin hasn't sort of lost it a bit, whether he isn't so consumed by obsession with history and, and resentment and, and a need for revenge, that he his mindset is somewhat like that of Slobodan Milosevic in the Yugoslav Wars. I, I really wonder whether this is, it is possible to have a rational conversation about possible subjects of compromise with the people who wrote those two draft treaties and with the man who wrote that essay on Ukrainian history um, in, in, in June. You, in fact, just answered my last question before I asked it, because it, it is the question, why has President Putin and Lavrov and the others, why have, why have they pushed it this far? What did they think they saw? Was it their own alternative, rea- alternative reality in which they live? Um, was it their own internal pressures? But we are where we are, which is obviously anyone listening to our conversation would conclude is not a good place. Well, let me say something that I haven't, didn't say just now, which is that um, if we put ourselves in Vladimir Putin's shoes, um, I think we could ex- can be excused for looking at the West and saying, these countries are in a very bad place. Putin probably knows that he himself is not in a good place. Because although the Russian government's finances right now are looking very good and they're getting additional rent income from the gas price spike um, and they have massive uh, national reserves, most other lead indicators for the Russian economy are heading downhill. They have a completely uncontrolled COVID crisis. And while they have modernized their military. Um, the Ukrainians have been saying, you know, the last time we had a conflict in 2014, um, we interacted with, or in fact captured, we had some Russian war prisoners who were young kids who told us, you know, that they didn't know what they were doing. And remember the protest of the Russia, of the soldiers' mothers in, in 2014, who were being suddenly told that their sons were dead and, and not told where they had died and not given access to the bodies. I, I think that there is a great deal that is wrong in the power and, and, and dysfunctional in the Kremlin's power base. And probably if there is a shred of connection with reality in the Kremlin, the assessment is things will not be going uphill from here. They will be going down. At the same time, I think the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin looks at the West, looks at an American president that appears to be politically on the defensive against a, an insurgent hard right looks at a French president who is struggling against an insurgent hard right, looks at a Germany struggling with the COVID crisis and also with uh, conspiracy theorists marching on the streets and questioning the legitimacy of governance and similar movements across Europe. And so the Kremlin's assessment may have been not about mud in Ukraine, but about political weakness in the West. And which is why it is so important that we demonstrate that actually we, we value we value our freedoms and our democracies, not just at home, but as an alliance, and stand up to this. This is not about Ukraine anymore. It's also about Ukraine, but it is also about us and about our future as a democratic alliance. Couldn't have said it better and couldn't agree more. Um, and I hope that we are up to that test. 
we we better be, but I'm I'm color me skeptical. I guess is all I is all I can say. Thank you, Constance, for for your time. Thank you for your for this conversation. Uh, let's hope that sixty um, percent is is not doesn't turn into a hundred percent. You know, I, again, surveys. I would discount surveys. No, sixty percent probability. Sixty percent probability of war. Oh, that yes, absolutely. Um, and no, yes, I, exactly. I agree with you on surveys. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm deep. I'm, I am, in fact, very worried about the possibility of conflict um, because I think we're de- we're dealing with an extremely unpredictable actor that may not have full control over it, over his own over the consequences of his own actors. But be that as it may, um, I think I see very little to to uh, to reassure anyone in this scenario. But I will say that it seems to me that it has forced all of us, including the political newcomers in Western capitals. Remember that some of the actors in Western capitals, including in the United States, were not there for the end of the Cold War, were not there for the unipolar moment, were not there for uh, the Yugoslav wars, and, and grew up with the Iraq war in Afghanistan. And I think that this is forcing all of us to reconsider, as every generation must, the reason why we are allies, why we are democracies, and why we have to stand together against threats such as these. Although I would prefer it to be otherwise. I think the short answer is I agree. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>